Um, let me introduce myself. For those of you guys who don't know me, I'm Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, wow. Yes, I love it. That's a first. Um, in fact, I was up here about a month ago, and uh, some of you guys may remember, I was preaching on peacemakers, and I was talking about how God has this way of just like when you're about ready to talk on something and you're studying it like crazy, just revealing you're really not that big an expert. And talked about all the ways that conflict just invaded my life and I just blew it all week long. Well, the saga continues. <laughs> Today we have lead us not into temptation. So if you have your Bibles, turn me to Matthew 6. <sighs> Let's just say, can we talk about food for a minute? Uh, I went to Dutch Village. How many of you guys have ever been to Dutch Village? Yeah, there's some clapping for that. Okay, I had never been to Dutch Village until this summer. But I went to Dutch Village and I was having a great day. My whole family's there, my kids, my mom and dad. And at some point my dad's like, let's get ice cream. And so we walked over there, getting some cheers for ice cream too. I love this. You got, it must be like a perfect summer day right now. Don't say fall, the fall people are happy. It feels a little bit like fall. But my dad gets this ice cream. He's like, you want some? And I said, no, I'm good. And so I just sat at the picnic table waiting for them to return, my daughter and my dad, and he came back with this giant sea salt caramel ice cream. In my mind, there was like entrance music for this ice cream that came down. Had those like naughty little chocolate caramel cups in there too, you know the ones I'm talking about. Clear jar so that I could see every little morsel in there. And I watched my dad and my daughter just polish off every last decadent bite and I resisted. Okay, so if you're keeping score, it's gonna be the only finger up on the success category. <laughs> because right after that, we started walking a little bit and there was free samples of cookies. And I heard that little small voice just kind of softly whispering in my ear like, Brandon, this is Dutch village. These are Dutch heritage cookies. <laughs> it would be downright culturally insensitive for you not to have some of these. So they were so little, it, it was shocking how many you could fit in one hand. <laughs> and as we left that section, I kid you not, this bright green delivery truck just backs up onto the grass. Beep, 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 beep. And the sliding door just swings open and there's this man dramatically inside there just saying, free ice cream, free popsicles, free frozen treats. And I thought, Lord, is this you rewarding me for saying no to the ice cream? And so I had these second thoughts of like, they went to a lot of work. Like how embarrassing to drive back that big lime green truck full of ice cream because no one took any. Like imagine the gas that they would waste with that extra weight. So this was really me being altruistic. I said, you know what, I'll take one of those. But before I could even get there, I had to walk past a tent. And I hadn't even noticed what was in the tent, but underneath it were these tables and they had these giant sheet cakes on them. And they were like, it's our founder's birthday, so we have free cake for you today. <laughs> and I thought, who goes to a birthday party and doesn't eat the cake? And then they had two kinds and they both looked good. Oh, guys, I probably added five pounds, but it gets worse. We had to leave. And the entire day leading up to this, we'd been telling my daughter, we're gonna make cookies at Dutch Village. We're gonna make these things. And so you go there and you make these hot, fresh, warm cookies, and then they ask you at the end, do you want a little caramel or a lot of caramel? 
And first thing, some of you guys are a little annoyed that I'm calling it caramel instead of caramel. It was delicious, and it was caramel. And second off, who answers, ah, just a little of that caramel? I was like, give me a cup, and I can dunk my cookie into the caramel. So if you guys are wondering why I'm pacing today, I've got a lot of calories that I need to burn off. If you're wondering where I'm at this morning, I'm just also thinking, preached on peacemaking, failed on conflict all week. Okay, preached on temptation, was just bombarded with temptation all week. <sighs> what do you do with this? But I'm also feeling, hum- I'm also feeling uh, hopeful in this moment because I've realized the paradigm. Whatever you preach on shows up in your life that week. And so this is my formal request. Next time that I'm up here, I wanna preach on Deuteronomy 8. Can I get the slide of Deuteronomy 8 up? You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, I'll just tell you, you better hope you're in the same stocks I am that week when I'm preaching on this. And yes, I know that's a fragment, and maybe that's because I ripped it a little out of context, but don't kill my dream here, all right? I'm just glad I'm not preaching Daniel in the lion's den. This could have got real ugly. Okay. In a minute, we're going to stand to read Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, but before we do, usually we stand out of reverence and awe for God's word. And so if you're willing and able, we're going to do that. But I don't want us just to have like me up here reading this. I want us to take an opportunity to recite the entire Lord's prayer. And even more than that, I don't want us just to recite this. I want us to remember this is a very real prayer. And it's a very real prayer that has all the pronouns, not being me's and I's, but being ours. And so we get an opportunity right now to collectively stand here and pray this prayer how I think Jesus would have wanted So if you will, if you're willing and able, please stand for the praying of God's word. Do we have that one on the screen as well? Then this is how you should pray. Oh, we gotta do this together. I'm already messing this up. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Give other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can grab a seat. By way of reminder, we're traveling through the Lord's Prayer this summer. Some of you guys have been here for all of this. Today we get to verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so today what I wanna do is look at this verse piece by piece. Okay, so we're gonna go piece by piece through this verse, and then at the end I wanna look at two biblical examples of temptation. And I wanna kinda mine everything we can for the strategies of temptation and what we can learn from it. So I've recited the Lord's Prayer. This is one of those weird thoughts that you have when you're falling asleep at night, but I've recited the Lord's Prayer I don't know how many times in my life, and I started thinking, how many times do you think you've recited that? And then my mind kind of went to like, how many times do you think everyone at Crossroads collectively has recited that? And I don't have any kind of answer for that, but I was curious. 
And it also made me curious, how many times have I recited it and missed these two little words that are so packed with power and meaning? These first two words, lead us not, lead us. I think there's two assumptions based into those two words. One, who's leading? Who's driving the bus? Who's calling the shots? Not a trick question. What do you guys think? God, right? Praying to God here, lead us, God. God's in control. And the second assumption is that we've accepted that fact. When you read this prayer, there's no notion that there's a power struggle going on at all. Just a request, God, I'm following. Wherever you lead, I'm going. My only kind of humble request is just, please don't lead me into temptation. I love that. I wish I lived my life with those two assumptions just at the forefront of my heart. But I love how this part of the prayer just reminds me of my own kids. Just reminds me about how they just trust me to lead them. Right, I have my daughter come with me and I just say, hey, come with me. And she follows, most of the time at least. Right, I don't even have to tell her where we're going. I just say, hey, I, I, come on, let's go. By the way, I, I is not my daughter's name, but it's what she calls herself and I just find it adorable. We also call her I.I. Jones. Our last name is not Jones. Go figure that one out, but that's just a little ADD side note here. Picture this little girl though, sweet, two and a half year old, strawberry blonde hair up in pigtails, putting her tiny little hand in mine. And I just say, come on, I.I. And she just goes, okay, grabs my hand and just, where are we going, daddy? That's how she says my name, I love it. Just willing to follow wherever it is. That's the picture here the trust of a child to a parent. Our Father is how this prayer starts, our Father in heaven. Or if you like it better, it's the same language as Psalm 23, right? A sheep and a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, he refreshes my soul, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I think that's the imagery that Jesus has in mind here. Lead me, like a sheep to a shepherd, like a child to a parent. God, lead me. How many of us want our relationship with God to be characterized by that level of intimacy, that level of dependence? And maybe that's the sticking point. I think most of us in here think that intimacy sounds good, to be known, to be seen, to be loved by the Father, but that whole notion of dependency, that takes a whole lot of humility. It takes a turning over the keys out of your pocket and just saying, okay, you drive wherever you wanna go. It takes trust. Can you fully say that today? Lead me, God. Wherever you go, I'm not even asking, I'm just following you. It takes a ton of humility. Some of us in this room when we're driving can't even admit when we're lost, let alone hand over the keys and say, lead me. It's a lot easier to just adventure by yourself to say, God, yeah, you can, you can come along, just sit in the passenger seat or maybe in the trunk. I got this, I'm driving, I know where we're going. In fact, don't even touch the radio, I'm on it. Like a child to a parent or like a sheep to a shepherd, that's a costly paradigm. You don't get to call the shots. When you wanna go left, he might go right. In the same way that when you have kids, they don't always get to tell you what you're doing, you just get a chance to say, no, we're not doing that right now, we're going this way. Let me just stop for a second and challenge you to ask. Do you want that? 
Deep down, if you're really honest, do you want that? That level of dependence, are you willing to follow wherever he leads? And if you say, yes, I'm ready to follow, let me ask you to search your heart for a minute and just say, are there parts, are there areas of my heart where my fist and my fingers are clenched just a little too tightly around this? I remember when I was younger singing a song, I Surrender All. And I remember just feeling this kind of like check in my spirit that was just kind of saying like, does that include your career plans? And I remember just kind of like arrogantly answering back like, no, no, we already got that figured out. I'm going pre-med, like we're good there. I surrender everything else, that's already covered. We've already worked that out. And just having to wrestle with what does it look like to pry your fingers back on an area of your life and say, truly lead me, whatever you have for me. If something comes to your mind, I wanna invite you today just to wrestle through what's it look like to kind of turn over another area and to say, God, lead me, you can have all of me. I may make requests, but I'm following where you're going whether you take my suggestion or not. When we do that, we have to trust. The reason my daughter just follows when I call is because she knows me and she knows my character and she knows that I don't take her to harmful places. Like I said, that doesn't mean we can't make requests of God. Look at the next part of the phrase. Here Jesus is teaching us to ask for what we want and what we need. Lord, lead us, but please not into temptation. Steer me away from those places. That phrase not into temptation, actually messed with me more this week than I thought it would. What do you guys think? Does God ever, why pray this? Does God ever lead us into temptation? What do you think? I hear some yeses, I hear some noes. I see a whole lot of faces that just say like, "Mm, I'm not touching that question. (laughs) Does God ever lead us into temptation? What do you think? Yes. Yes, all right, let's pull up the first verse. I wasn't expecting that one, so confidently. James chapter one, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. This is why it messed with me a little bit, right? What's that verse saying? Does God tempt? No. In fact, it seems clear enough from that one, but let me put it this way. I like how Mark Dever says it. He says, God is not playing a double game here. God doesn't call us to holiness on one hand and then immediately try to tempt us and get us to fall on the other side. God takes no delight in our sin. God doesn't toy with us. He's not like the parent who toys with the kid. He doesn't call us and say, no sweets, and then bake cookies and waft them underneath our nose, right? All of heaven isn't sitting around watching, cheering, like taking side bets, like, Michael, I bet you can't get Brandon to fall today. The Greek word, so, let me actually back up, because you guys answered yes, a number of you, and you're not, you're not completely wrong here. Genesis 22, how does Genesis 22 start? Can anyone tell me? It's the story of God and Abraham and Isaac. Genesis 22 starts off with this phrase. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. What's the difference between testing and tempting? God clearly tests, but James says God doesn't tempt. The Greek word is actually the same for tempt, test, trial, tribulation. We just read from James who said God doesn't tempt, but look at this next passage from James, same guy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. What's going on here? This is like 10 verses away. Is James talking out of both sides of his mouth? I don't think so. Let me put it this way. Biblically speaking, tempting is offered. Temptation is offered in the hopes that you're gonna fail. Testing, James says, develops perseverance and faith so that we can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Temptation is for our destruction. It's for our, destro- for our destruction. If we can be confident that God is not gonna lead us here. Testing, on the other hand, is for our benefit. It's for our maturity. And sometimes God does lead us here. Makes me wonder, though, how it would change how I looked at suffering if I had this lens most of the time. In the same way that you teach a child to ride a bike and eventually you take the training wheels off, the big test, can they do it on their own? The goal is completely different from temptation. No one's hoping that kid just crashes and burns in the most painful way possible. Are we clear on the difference? Does that make sense? But even more than that, if you go back to Genesis 22, It talks about how God tested Abraham, how God is the one who tests, but that's not the point of the passage. If you read on, the point of the passage is God may test, but God is also the one who provides. That whole thing culminates when God provides the sacrifice. This is the God that we serve. He doesn't send us in blind, but he he provides for us. Like that parent teaching the child how to ride the bike, they give them all the skills, all the practice, they provide everything they need before sending them off to realize that they can do some of this on their own. This isn't to say that we'll ever, we won't be tempted. We will be tempted in this life, but it won't be by God. In fact, even when we're tempted by the evil one, scripture talks about how God will provide for us. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you're tempted, God will also provide a way for you to endure it. There's that word again. God provides for us a way to stand up to temptation, provides for us a way to grow in faith and maturity and handle the tests of this life. That's why this passage, I think, ends with the request from Jesus, but deliver us from evil. God, provide for us. Give us a way out of this. Let's look at that section now. Deliver us from evil or the evil one. Notice this doesn't say, lead us not in temptation, but provide for me the way to get out of this myself, the way to deliver myself from this temptation. Again, it's just complete reliance on the shepherd, right? Like sheep continually looking to their shepherd. If a wolf comes, I can't defend myself. I need you, I'm trusting you, I'm looking to you. This passage is God, deliver us. I want to address one thing. Deliver us from what? Some of you guys' translations say evil. Some of them say the evil one. Biblically speaking, evil is multifaceted. It is. Scripture talks about how there's an evil inside of me, right, that desires things that aren't good for me. For example, pounds and pounds of treats from Dutch Village that will create pounds and pounds for me. There's an evil inside of me that doesn't want what's good for me. Scripture also talks about how there's not just an evil inside of me, but there's also an evil around me, right? There are people who just back up lime green trucks filled with sweets to tempt me with them. Evildoers, sorry if you're here today. Thank you for that popsicle. (laughs) 
There's also an evil above me, right? So there's an evil inside me. There's an evil around me. There's also an evil above me. We have a very real adversary. The Bible doesn't let us be reductionistic about evil. It talks about all three, the flesh, what's inside of me, the world, what's around me, and the evil one who's above me. I like how Tim Keller puts it. He talks about how there's a psychological evil. That's what's inside of you. It's psychological, the sociological, what's around you, and the spiritological one, what's above you. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's not a real word. And I'll just say, watch your tone. That's Tim Keller. (laughs) That man is made, that beautiful man is made in the image of God. Bald. (laughs) Tim Keller goes on a little bit. He just talks about how Christians get laughed at for being so simplistic. That we actually believe in a real devil prowling around trying to get us. But what if the world is the simplistic ones? Christians believe that evil is multifaceted, multidimensional, if you will. And as such, we believe that things like school shootings are complex with all different evil forces at play. Poverty, racism, they're complex with all different forces at play in this. There's different agents that are at work and we're trying to recognize all of them. If you try to reduce anything down to just one piece, maybe even two pieces, you're being reductionistic and the Bible won't let us go there. Evil is always multi-dimensional. Christians believe that we do have a real enemy that prowls around, an enemy within us also, and an enemy around us in terms of the world. And I know that that part about having a real enemy that prowls around that's above us, an evil one, if you will, an adversary is a challenge for some. But let me just ask Crossroads, are we too sophisticated to believe in a devil? Jesus makes it clear that we are to pray for deliverance. We have a real enemy, someone seeking to devour us. And we can't insulate ourselves from this, regardless of where we live, the insurance we possess, the relationships we foster, the education we receive, the amount of savings we can amass in a 401k, we are at war. We can bury our heads in the sand and act like we're not, but it doesn't change the very real fact that we are at war. Cain, evil is crouching at your door. Its desire is to consume you. Peter says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Evil is all around us. You can't ignore it and you can't avoid it. Take something as simple as the Lord's Prayer. We've been praying through this this whole summer. I'll tell you guys, I am tempted every day to pray the opposite. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, help me make a name for myself. I'm not as concerned with yours, but I got some big plans for my name this week. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Help me with this mini kingdom that I'm building over here. It's really close. God, I've got some big plans. If you could just help me to get my will done in this area, that would be great. Give us today our daily bread. Yeah, God, I'm kind of full. I've been feasting on everything that the world has to offer. And yeah, I'm kind of full. I'm not real hungry right now. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those have sinned against us. God, I am just so angry with that person. I pray you would just make it come to light. Let it come to light, everything that they've done. I pray they'd feel the full consequences of their actions. Am I alone in this? I don't think we realize how countercultural this idea of avoiding temptation is. 
The whole world is preaching that the most surefire way to not achieve your full potential is to suppress your desires, to not go after what you want. Whether it's business aspirations, relationship aspirations, sexual aspirations, I've been telling people for years now, polyamory's coming. Why restrict your desires to just one person? It's coming and it's here. People are talking about it all the time. This is the stuff that I'm bombarded with every day. I heard it, not polyamory. But these are the things, right? I uh, started thinking about a business idea the other day. And uh, immediately, like I, I Googled one little thing and immediately my Instagram feed and everything that I have just was filled with these advertisements and these feeds for like entrepreneurs and all that stuff. And I scanned through them and you can just boil the entire bit of advice down to one thing. You don't have to go there. I'll, I'll give you the secret right now. Relentlessly, doggedly, go after what you desire. If you wanna be rich, sacrifice your energy. Sacrifice your sleep. I heard it yesterday. Rich people don't sleep eight hours a day. Give up your sleep. Rich people would never sleep eight hours a day. And so if you wanna be rich, you need to sacrifice your sleep. Sacrifice your current money, reinvest it. Friendships, family, don't listen to anyone else who has any other advice. People told Bill Gates that was a bad idea. Look at how far he got. Chase what you desire most in this world and sacrifice everything lesser. That's the advice. All those things are the prayer flipped upside down. You have a right to build your own kingdom. You have a right to make a name for yourself. You have a right to be angry and not forgive, to not waste time on unhelpful people. This is the antithesis of the prayer that we just prayed. And I'm not saying that it's bad to be driven. Please don't hear me say that. Drive is a good thing. But what I am saying is we first have to investigate the desire that's driving us. Is it all about me or is it seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added unto you? We like to kind of race through that whole first part. Uh, and all these things will be added to me, yes. <laughs> Guys, we have a real enemy and he's seeking to devour. We can't afford to indiscriminately chase after all of the things that we desire. We can't afford to be ignorant of his tactics either. So here's what I wanna do. I think sometimes we're playing into his hands with the choices that we make. So let me look at, let me pull up kind of two biblical stories, and I want us to look at these. Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve are tempted, and Matthew 4, you can put a finger in each if you've got your Bible. Matthew 4, where Jesus is driven out into the wilderness to be tested and tempted. And what I want to do is I want to look at the strategies that Satan uses to tempt in these and try to see if they maybe still apply to us today. So let's look at Genesis 3 to start. And then we'll go to Matthew 4. Genesis 3 says, starts this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
I know some of us in here have heard this passage dozens, maybe hundreds of times, but I wanna look through the lens of discerning Satan's strategies. I would argue he uses three lies here. So if you're taking notes, this is like stealing the enemy's playbook, all right? College football started yesterday. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) That was a heartier amen than I was expecting right there. It's like, uh, this is like stealing the signs from the opposing team, all right? It's actually pretty easy. He only uses three plays. And before you say, I, as I'm saying it out loud, I'm hearing like, Brandon's telling us to cheat. No, Brandon's not telling you to fight temptation by cheating. Brandon's telling you to study film, right? Study the opponent, learn their tactics, learn how they operate. So here's number one, lie number one. You should doubt God. You should doubt God. Did God really say You will not certainly die. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Satan's trying to get Eve to doubt what God said, but maybe even more importantly, to doubt God's character. God really doesn't have her best interests at heart and that he's being deceptive and trying to hold her back. Lie number one, you should doubt God. Lie number two, you should doubt how he's made you. You should doubt how God's made you. This is a subtle one, but listen, for, listen to it here. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, in other words, what she was lacking, she took some and she ate it. Satan convinced her that she was somehow lacking by not being like God. She was incomplete without the wisdom of the knowledge of the good and evil. In other words, she was just incomplete, she didn't measure up. Can any of us relate to that lie? You're a screw up, you aren't good enough, you don't really matter, you should be perfect. God made us finite, and there's nothing wrong with that. We're not meant to be like him, in the same way that a flower isn't lacking because it's not like a dog, right? No one looks at a rose and thinks, boy, if that just grew fur and a tail and a tongue, it would be so much more beautiful. Is a sheep lacking because they're not like the shepherd? No. But that lie that you should doubt how he made you, that you're somehow incomplete. Lie number three, don't worry. You can fix it yourself. Don't worry, you can fix this. Just reach out and take the fruit. It's right there. You can make all this go away. You may not be able to trust God. You may be defective, but you know what? You have the power to set everything right, Satan's telling Eve. If you just eat that fruit and gain that wisdom, you'll be complete. You won't need God anymore because you'll not only be made in his image, you will be like him, an equal to God. Do you see the power in these three simple lies? I think they're recycled all the time. It reminds me of Denzel Washington and Uh, Remember the Titans when he says, I only run six plays, split veer like Novocaine. Works every time, just give it time. Except here, Satan doesn't even need six plays. He only needs three. These are always Satan's lies. Doubt God, doubt how he's made you, and don't worry, you can fix it yourself. Fast forward a little bit to Matthew chapter four. Matthew four, Jesus has just been baptized, and we had that amazing moment where Jesus is standing in front of all these people and God's audible voice comes down and says, this is my son in whom I love. Listen to him. 
right? That fatherly blessing for everyone to hear who he is, his identity. And then Jesus gets driven out into the wilderness to be tempted. What three lies show up again? You should doubt God. You can't trust God's leading and provision. He drove you out here into the desert. You're gonna starve to death. Turn these stones into bread. Lie number two. You should doubt how he's made you. Satan repeatedly starts every temptation with what? If you really are the son of God, if you really are the son of God, what's implied there? Prove yourself. You don't really seem like son material. I'm not convinced. Prove it. And lie number three flows right into that. Prove it. Don't worry, you can fix this yourself. Force God's hand. Throw yourself off this building. Take control of it. Prove to everyone who's doubted you that you really are the son of God. Right now, you can do this and everyone will know that you are the Messiah. You can fix this. Let me show you how this works today. You show me a temptation in your life and I bet if we dig deep enough, you're gonna find one or maybe all three of these lies. The problem is, the, isn't the, is that we always focus on the object of our temptation. We rarely get to the lies that are underneath it. Let me say that again. We tend to always focus on the object of our temptation and never get to the lies that are really underneath. Henry Thoreau says it this way, for every thousand hacking at the leaves of evil, there's only one striking at the root. For every thousand striking at the leaves of evil, there's only one striking at the root. We have to get at the lies and the root that's underneath stuff or we're doomed in fighting this battle. I'm an approval guy. I tend to care way too much what people think. And this sermon this week, honestly, just was not coming together well. I didn't have much time and I just felt like things weren't lining up and I was really struggling and I was tempting, tempted. And I'll be honest, I gave in to letting it just kind of consume me, to let that anxiety rise up, to try to steal away as much time as I could from my family even. Why, what was the root? Was it the sermon? No, that's, that's the object. What was the root? I have insecurities. I doubt how I'm made. I feel like I can only mask those insecurities by performing well, by getting people to like me. The lie that I'm by is that I'm broken, but I can cover it on my own. I can take care of this myself if I just work really hard and I do a really good job. Then maybe I'll feel complete. The root too is that I doubt God, that he's enough. I still feel like I need approval. Where do you see this in your life? Where do these lies show up and what temptations are you believing these things in? And how do we attack the root? I think we attack what's underneath the temptation. We go back to these same three lies and not in a moment of temptation, but right now and, at, and going forward when you have a moment of clarity to start pressing into these and examining Learning the tactics of our enemy, but actually learning to speak the truth to these lies. Lie one, doubt God. You press into what God's character actually is. Some of us in this room right now are doubting God. We've been crying out for deliverance and he hasn't seemed to answer. And some of us feel like we can't trust a God that seems far off and distant and indifferent. And I'll tell you, I can't either. If that's your struggle, this is why you have to get to know the shepherd because he's not far off and indifferent. 
This is why the God of the Bible is so enticing because the God of the Bible is actually a God who has scars, who's suffered himself, who can empathize with our weakness, who's been tested and tempted in every way and yet proved himself faithful. A God who triumphed over sin, death, and the devil, all the forces of evil at great expense to himself. A good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That's exactly what Jesus did. Can you trust him? Well, he was willing to die for you, you tell me. And some of you might be asking, where is he now? Jesus is also the one who prays for us when we're tempted. We may need deliverance and we may pray for it, but Jesus is praying for it too. He talks to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan longs to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Romans 8 says it this way, where is Christ right now? He's seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Line number two, doubt how he's made you. I love, this is a little tip that I love to give people. I agree with that voice. When it whispers in my ear, you're a failure, look, you screwed up again. I love to just agree with it. When I try to fight it, I end up trying to prove it myself. And I just fall right into his hand to go down to line number three. But when I just agree with it, you're a failure, I just yeah, I failed again. You're right, I screwed up. But I've got a God who bleeds for the screw-ups of this world. I'm finite. I'm not perfect. I'm not made to be equal with God. Just like the flower isn't incomplete because it's the dog, it isn't a dog, or a sheep isn't incomplete because it's not the shepherd. You wanna know a little secret voice in my head? I've been given his righteousness his perfect record. We've been given his status, male or female, adopted and given the status of firstborn sons. When Christ looks at me, or when God looks at me, he sees Christ's righteousness and the same is true for you. Lie number three, you can fix this yourself. Dependence, lead me. I can't do this on my own, Lord. I'm utterly lost without you here. I need your provision. This gets a lot easier when I look at my track record. Every time that I've tried to prove this and fix it myself, it winds up worse. Makes it a lot easier to just fall on my knees and just pray like Jesus, Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from this evil. Lord, I need you. Let's just do that right now and pray. God, that line, Lord, I need you, is so true of every single one of us in this room, whether we recognize it or not, Lord. Lord, I pray that you, as the good shepherd who lays down your life for us, would reveal your character, would reveal how we've created us, and that you would just take the pressure off. Lord, that you've already done it all, that you've already accomplished, that you've already triumphed, and that all that's left is for us to just worship, Lord, and enjoy and to be faithful. Lord, I pray that you would remind us that we don't have to be great, just faithful. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your unfailing love, that if we hide in the depths, you are there. If we go to the mountaintops, you are there. And that nothing can separate us from your love. God, lead us not into the temptation, but deliver us from evil. For your name's sake and for your glory.